Hey everyone, this is Derek Stone. And this is Conrad Geringer. And you're listening to the Working Triathlete Podcast. Today we have one of Conrad's athletes with us, Seth Gorson, and he recently competed at the Gulf Coast 70.3 Triathlon. And we're going to talk about his experience. Um, it was his first triathlon, which was super cool. Um, he has some really cool details to share. When you're listening to this podcast, feel free to give us a review at the end and uh, any feedback you, you feel like. But Seth, why don't you introduce yourself and talk about who you are, where you live, go from there. Well, first of all, thank you guys for, for having me. Uh, as you guys said, I'm Seth Gorson, and uh, I'm based out here in San Francisco, California, uh, but I grew up on the East Coast in Connecticut, where swimming and running and biking were actually all kind of just regular activities. Uh, swimming was kind of what we did for fun. Biking was how I got everywhere, and running was required for a lot of things, <laughs> most, you know, any sport you could possibly do. And so I kind of grew up with those activities and now I'm just out here. I work as a digital marketer uh, for Lumosity. So we make cognitive training games. So another sort of performance focused outlet for me as well uh, within my career. With your career, do you play, I know there's like brain games and things like that. So do you play those games yourself at all? Yeah, I do a fair amount. I kind of go through spurts. Um, kind of like everybody else. Sometimes I get on a streak where I'm playing them every day. A lot of times I also have to play them to test them and I get sort of hooked uh, on them and, and trying to get myself better. Coming up in, in August, we're actually partnering with the folks who put on the USA Memory Championship. Coming off of last year, you know, they've started digitizing the event more and making it more virtual. So they're actually using some of our games in the official Memory Championship. Um, so I've been practicing on those a little bit just so I can kind of see how I stack up against these guys, you can memorize like thousands of random digits or or a 200 word long poem just within the, a few minutes of, of reciting it to themselves. So do you have a memory palace, Seth, that helps you memorize <laughs> things? Uh, I do. I, I've only used it to memorize a few sets of information, um, but it the house that I grew up in uh, back in West Hartford, Connecticut. So when you when you say a memory palace, what, what does that actually mean? What psychologists have found is that the human memory for like uh, the way things are arranged spatially is actually better than our memory for anything else. And so you take a place or location that you can remember very vividly in your mind, which for a lot of people is, is like the home they currently live in or the home that they grew up in. And then when you're trying to remember something, you place the things that you're trying to remember around that space. So there's a great book, New York Times bestseller called Moonwalking with Einstein that will walk through this. And they have a great example partway through the book with just a, a list of to-dos and uh, grocery list items and things like that. And I still remember from reading the book, the first item on there was a carton of cottage cheese. And I remember that because I created this picture in my mind of like a giant tub of cottage cheese in front of my front door. And so I have to like now pick up this giant tub and move it to the side just to get into the front door. And then when I walk in, I can I still picture it. There's these like six dancing bottles of wine up on the chandelier that was above our living room couch. And so you create these vivid memories. You try to bring them to life as much as you can. You plant them around the house. And then if you want to remember them, you basically just take a tour of that location in, in your mind's eye. So that can also help with the sequence of things. So one of the cool events is uh, speed cards where they try to memorize actually multiple decks of cards um, in just a few minutes and then recite the sequence of the cards. And so the sequence can come from, you know, just walking through the house. You know, you want that first item to be at the front door and then you, you keep finding those items throughout the house. 
it's it's one of those things that's actually easier done than said. It sounds like you're trying to memorize extra things now, but all you have to do is really bring up that visual memory and the other things that you're trying to remember will be there. Maybe <laughs> yeah. maybe you'll add a uh, a bike into that memory palace now. You, <laughs> Absolutely. you spent a lot of time on it over the last few months, over the last year or so. What would a home be without a nice bike trainer setup? It wouldn't really be a home, in my opinion. <laughs> it's as essential as a dining room table. Pretty much. Yeah, Probably I mean, more essential. You, you, yeah, you should just have it set True. up right at the dining room table. That way you can eat and write at the same time. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Your entry into triathlon. Talk about that a little bit. Sort of what motivated you to take up the sport and, and what was the sequence there? Yeah, so, you know, I got a little bit of exposure to it Uh when you, Conrad, talked me into doing a half marathon in Zion National Park, um, I was not easily convinced that I wanted to run that far, but I was easily convinced that I wanted to go back to Zion. And that seemed like my, my ticket for getting there. So I picked it up. And then shortly after that, that was February last year, 2020. And so it was very shortly after that, that the pandemic broke out and uh, the climbing gyms were closed, which was that my main sort of exercise activity before then. And so it seemed like the natural decision was just to keep running. And I've always, as I mentioned, growing up around bikes and water and, and these multi-sports. And I, I actually even saw a bunch of sprint triathlons taking place in the town I grew up as I was getting older. And so I've kind of always had it in my mind that someday I would, I would do triathlon this just seemed like the right opportunity. So I bought the bike, started setting up the pain cave and kind of took it from there. And, you know, I'm sure I'm not the only one, but the, the pandemic just created a great time uh, to pick up the sport. And it was, ended up being a great opportunity for me to get outside and, and create some focus. So it was kind of a natural progression. So you mentioned you had some background. Talk about some of your I guess, what events did you focus on? Any any notable PRs that you want to talk about? Interestingly, the first event I ever swam was the 25 backstroke. My sister was a swimmer and being four years older than me, I always looked up to her and her swim coach was also my swim instructor. And so one day while we were at a swim meet, they needed someone in that event, the 25 backstroke. The coach ran up to me. She said, you've been practicing your backstroke. Do, do you want to try racing it? And I actually won that race <laughs> as like an eight-year-old, the 25 backstroke. And I don't think I've ever raced backstroke since then. Um, <laughs> I became really deeply focused on, on the breaststroke that the breaststroke kick was always a lot more natural to me than the flutter kick. And so I, I think it's gone now, uh, but I held the 100 breaststroke record at my high school at like a 104. And then also part of a medley relay. I think our medley relay time may have been, may still be the record there. And so for the 50 breasts in that, as part of that relay, I think I went like 29. In college, I swam for one year at D3 at Keene State College in New Hampshire. And I got that 104 uh, breaststroke down to a 102. That's awesome. I mean, I don't know if I could jump in the pool and swim a hundred yards freestyle in 102 right now. Maybe off the blocks. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe off the blocks. Yeah. Well, breaststroke was a lot of fun. And uh, but yeah, thanks for that. I wish I wish everyone had to do it uh, during the triathlons because then it would really have a leg up. <laughs> that would be comical, actually. <laughs> <laughs> there were the last race that we went to. There were quite a few people breaststroking at the beginning, at least. Because it was chaos. For survival purposes? Yeah. For survival purposes, exactly. 
so you have the swim background and then you hopped into and started training for the, the Zion half marathon, did the Zion half marathon, uh, in a, in a fairly quick time on, on a fairly small amount of training. And then you sort of in, enjoyed endurance training. The natural next step was just signing up for 70.3. Why not have your first triathlon be a half Ironman? So, so what was it that compelled you to continue with uh, endurance training? A few things happened and throughout the rest of the year in 2020, uh, I did want to do some shorter distance triathlons just to sort of get my feet wet and, and learn the ropes. Of course, those were canceled uh, due to the pandemic. And, and so those weren't working out. And, you know, the other big thing happened, big thing that happened to me in, in 2020 was that I lost my father to cancer uh, in July. And so between the really dynamic environment of just living through the pandemic and losing my father, I like really just needed some sort of constant, some sort of outlet that I could focus on and, and direct a lot of my attention to. And so that's kind of what kept me going. It, it was almost needed and necessary at that point that, that I keep training. So I kept training throughout the year, but December rolled around after finally deciding I was not going to do Challenge Daytona down in Florida. December rolled around. I'd been training all year and I didn't really have any races to serve as like that sense of accomplishment or, you know, to give me a finish line to run across. And so I was really looking for that sense of accomplishment. And I was also feeling down because I soon came to realize that, you know, I probably wasn't going to see my family over the holidays because the pandemic was still uh, spiking and that wasn't going to be a safe decision either. And then one, let's call it a Thursday morning, Spencer Sharp called me up, another another teammate from Working Triathlete. And uh, anyone who knows Spencer will recognize immediately. He's a very jovial guy from the UK and he just you know, he overflows with positive energy. So the minute I heard his voice on the phone, super energetic, I was like, I need whatever this guy is having. You know, <laughs> like I said, I was feeling kind of down. As it turned out, the reason for his excitement was that he had just registered for the Ironman Gulf Coast. And so he was kind of calling me to evangelize. And his pitch was really simple. He just said he had signed up and that if it sounded even remotely intriguing, I should just register now because spots were going fast. And so the advice was like, sign up now, make the decision later. <laughs> and so I, I signed up. Then I started to, you know, kind of reflect on it and realize, you know, this daunting and, and seemingly impossible distance of the 70.3 is my first race might actually be the very thing that I need to push myself and dig deep and rediscover some of my own strength, you know, coming out of that, that difficult year. And so that was my mindset. Uh, as I started training for the Gulf Coast uh, Ironman race was, this is a race I'm going to finish. This is a race where I'm going to discover what I'm capable of and, you know, generate some some sense of accomplishment to kind of spark things off and, and really start this whole triathlon thing as if the whole year of training leading up to that uh, wasn't even part of it. And then, so at Gulf Coast, and I'll just skip ahead a little bit, but, you know, you, you lay down a pretty darn good performance in your first triathlon. So you qualified for the world championships. You went well under five hours. So you met, you met all of your goals. And I think you did it in an atypical way, just in that it was your first try and you actually did it on a road bike. Uh, so <laughs> <laughs> talk a little bit about your bike and, and if you had any 
insecurities or, or, or you questioned your ability to perform even though you were using a road bike around all of these super bikes at 70.3 Gulf Coast? So that was definitely something weighing on me. You know, we had worked and I seen my FTP on the bike increase a, a handful of times since we started. And so I knew I was starting to get stronger there. Um, and so I felt good about the power that I could put up, but I was really worried about how fast that would actually let me go on the race course. And you know, some of our test rides, like around Nashville, you know, there was a lot of wind and a lot of hills. And I just wasn't seeing those watts translate to the speed I was going to need. You know, we talked about, I, I did want to come in under five hours. You know, my first priority was finish the race, but very close second to that was I wanted to do it in under five hours, which I, based on, you know, my math meant I had to ride the bike in two and a half hours or so which meant holding, you know, well over 20 miles an hour for the entire race. And then of course we get there and all I see are time trial bikes and, and tri bikes. And I don't think I saw a single bike there that wasn't probably like five X the cost of, you know, my, my Cannondale road bike, partly because I got a great deal on it, but got the aero bars on there is pretty decent setup. Conrad, you lended me uh, your aero helmet, which, I don't know how many watts that saved me, but I know at least psychologically, it made me feel a lot better to know I was, I was sitting under the fastest helmet I could be sitting on. Finally, you know, the other thing that boosted my ego was just, you know, sort of doing some test rides with you. And you said, you know, you look fast, you're getting aero, you've been disciplined and you had hammered into me really early on that I needed to stay aero. So I spent a lot of time during training, making sure I was just in that arrow position as much as possible. The only time I ever broke it was if, you know, I really couldn't hold my target output while staying in that position. I just stayed super disciplined about keeping it tight. You know, sure enough, we'll, we'll walk through the race in a little bit, but sure enough, it, it didn't take long into the ride for me to realize my target watt range was going to have me right where I wanted to be. So it was really just the preparation that overcame the nerves there about, you know, having the wrong kind of gear. You had like a niggle in your knee, if I recall correctly, because when we did the camp, you took the runs pretty easy. Talk about that a little bit. Like, did that get to your head a little bit or did you, were you concerned about your fitness going in or even if it would hold up during the race? Hands down. I mean, above the, the concerns about my bike were, were definitely top of mind, but right ab like above that was me worrying about my knee. Luckily I got through most of the mental stress within the first few days that it happened. So it was a chronic injury at IT band friction syndrome, which is super common. It's like probably second most common to the, you know, um, like patella friction that can develop in runners or runner's knees as it's often called. And everything in my training had been going really well. I, you know, I already talked about how motivated I was and excited I was for this like sense of accomplishment. And then this one Saturday I went out for my long run, something just didn't feel right in my knee. So I kept stopping, trying to warm up more, doing some drills, some leg swings, trying to just shake everything out. You know, usually those little pains that are there when you start running, go away, you know, in the first couple of miles. But on that particular Saturday, it just kept getting worse. That was kind of a busy day. So I didn't think too much about it. But the next morning when I tried to bike, the pain was still there. And that's when I fell apart. I like absolutely spiraled into the most negative thoughts. I was like, I'm not going to be able to do this race. I'm not going to get that sense of accomplishment. I've been working all this time. Nothing's happening my way. I'm just trying to do something healthy for myself. Like why can't the universe just give me this like one opportunity? And I, I really broke down. That's when I started to realize that, you know, this can't just stay an individual uh, pursuit. 
And, you know, I was going to need to lean on some other people because I just didn't feel capable of convincing myself that this knee injury wasn't the end of the world. I called my mom and my sisters, let out all of the emotional stuff, had my tantrum. And then once I kind of had my shit together, I called Conrad because uh, he's always really good at focusing on the pragmatic stuff. And he was like, of course, he has an encyclopedic memory for like every race that's ever happened and every pro athlete. So he starts by citing, you know, 10 pros that had like their breakout moments after having injuries that were, you know, bothering them just, you know, a few weeks out from the race. Um, it, it, we, we nailed things down to a plan, cutting down on the runs, getting to a doctor, getting a diagnosis, making sure it wasn't anything, you know, more alarming than what we uh, had hoped. And then, you know, just taking everything from there. And as soon as I had a plan, I started feeling a lot better. And I was just super diligent about following all the advice that I got from Conrad, the doctors, the PT, and eventually made the decision to get a cortisone shot a few weeks out from the race, which, which I think helped. And yeah. And so that was definitely the biggest emotional challenge that got thrown my way in this, in this particular training cycle. And uh, I learned a lot about what it meant to lean on other people and that it's not just me. One thing with you is that you're super mindful. And I think that might be one of the reasons why you enjoy endurance sports or that you can get more out of your body. And uh, I don't know, talk about that a little bit when it comes to just mindfulness and endurance sports and the psychological aspect of that. Because I feel like you have a very good, um, just obviously head on your shoulders, but you have interesting philosophies when it comes to, you know, meditation and how it relates to endurance training and things like that. Thanks for that question. I mean, I do sort of obsess over the psychology behind everything I do. And so I, I could come at that question from a, a lot of directions, but a, a few things that I know I focus on pretty regularly is one, just basic meditation. Uh, one of the most common exercises is just to focus on your breath. Uh, you can even try counting your breaths, the ins and the outs. And whenever you find your mind wandering, as soon as you notice that your mind is wandering or that you're, you know, maybe you've started planning out things you have to do later that day or the next day or ruminating over things that happened the previous day, as soon as that happens, you just bring your attention uh, back to the breath. A lot can develop out of that basic exercise. But what I think is most essential there is you're developing the ability to concentrate. So, when we're running or on the bike doing a long workout, it requires a lot of mental focus and concentration to put out the right intensity, to stay in the right zone. I know, especially running, sometimes there's a faster interval that I'm like more than capable of holding. But at some point, my mind wanders and I literally forget that I'm trying to hold that pace. And luckily, now I'm set up, you know, with a watch that will buzz when that happens, but it requires a lot of concentration. And so by practicing, just that basic exercise with the breath. I find that comes in handy a lot um, during my workouts to keep me really focused. It also helps to endure pain and discomfort because you can kind of just focus on the present moment and something that isn't painful, like, like your breath. And then, you know, I like to play a lot of games with my motivation as well. If, it, if it's tough, if I'm kind of debating, if I'm stuck thinking about how badly I don't want to do a workout, you know, I'll often remind myself of, the race that's coming up and just think, well, during a race, I don't want there to be a moment where I'm uncomfortable. And so if I go out and do a workout today, just something over nothing, then uh, that's going to have me better prepared and decrease the likelihood of feeling uncomfortable on race day. Uh, so that's always a big motivation. And there's a whole bag of tricks that you start to develop uh, to, to get yourself out there. But so just using mindfulness to keep me consistent 
in terms of doing the workouts and keeping me concentrated while I'm in the workouts. Great insight. And clearly that, that mindfulness paid off because you had a great race. Um, (laughs) (laughs) so I guess we can go through the race discipline by discipline, step by step. And, uh, you can kind of describe what, what happened and and what you were feeling and, and how it proceeded. These are vivid memories for me, full of detail. Uh, so I'll, t- I'll try to keep my story moving, but let me know if you guys have any questions along the way. I mean, right from the starting lines, I, I could see that the waves were way bigger uh, than they were the day before. The water was a lot more choppy than when we did, you know, our, our venue kind of test swim. I felt kind of unfazed by that though, because I'm really comfortable in the water and I figure we're all swimming in the same water in the same waves. So it's not like those are giving anyone an advantage or, or disadvantage running into the water. My intention was to stay on Derek's feet. I figured he would set a pretty good pace. Wait a minute. I, I was going to stay on your feet. <laughs> <laughs> that was my plan. <laughs> well, either way, that, that plan clearly uh, fell apart. For me, it was because I got distracted by how shallow the water was, uh, which was another thing I didn't really notice when we went out for our test swim. I kind of went in the water, splashed around for a while, and then started my workout. So I didn't think about what the entry was going to be like. And I got super distracted trying to decide really quickly, am I going to keep running through this water or am I going to start swimming or am I going to do some sort of hybrid? Luckily, I saw some woman start doing the the power fly, as I call it, just jumping off of the bottom and, and diving until you get a little bit further out. And I followed suit on that. And then when I finally settled into my stroke, I realized I have no idea where Derek is. And there was a big crowd of people. And so things got congested super fast. And so I kind of just, I really didn't want to deal with like bumping into everybody and, and anybody trying to swim over me. I was a little worried that I would get kind of like angry at someone if they did that and that I, I would start swimming too hard to like make up for it. Uh, so I, I ended up going way outside of everybody um, and coming around. And for the most part, I felt good about the swim and that I, I knew I stayed within you know, my target range and I kept the pace, uh, healthy. Um, but next time I will definitely want to be more diligent about finding the right feet and also staying close to the buoys. Um, in retrospect, looking at the Strava data, I noticed Derek's pace was actually either the same as mine or maybe like a second or two slower, but I swam an extra like hundred or 200 yards by swimming outside of everybody. Um, so, so next time I definitely need to stick to the course and, and, uh, make sure I stay in line just to pull the best time I can. That was pretty much the swim and and it otherwise, luckily I I didn't have the Strava data coming out of the water. So none of that was really bothering me. I just felt good uh, about where I was, um, and was thinking about the transition. So, I guess you want to talk briefly about when you exited the water. Cause I know, like you mentioned, the water was choppier, the, the day of the race. And it was Conrad and I did like a, a little test to see if we could run faster or swim faster to the shore. The day before we did that, I caught a wave and I literally wrote it in. Conrad was <laughs> oh, running beautiful. in and it, it was perfect. Like I was like, okay, race day, this is going to happen. Not even close. <laughs> I feel like I was all over the place, but when you, when you got out of the water or when you're about to, did you have any challenges or anything like that? Definitely. So you know, I saw that it was starting to get shallower and I was, you know, eager to get to the next step of the race. And so I remember, you know, I saw that the ground was pretty close to me and I would, 
I wasn't sighting that much anymore because I knew I was on target. So I didn't actually know how far I still had to go. And I just stood up and realized there was still so much water between me and the shoreline. And I saw some other folks were still swimming. So I was like, okay, I'll keep swimming. Then I remembered, you know, the, uh, the power fly move and, and started doing that. Although I got briefly nervous because I didn't even know if that was allowed because I was like pushing off of the bottom. Uh, so then I kind of went back to swimming. I was like, I don't want to make a big show splashing around in the water, jumping off of the bottom if that's not acceptable. Um, and so I swam until it got kind of like ridiculously shallow. And I probably should have been standing up at that point. Uh, but I finally got up and, and, and started running out. And I also remember that I felt my quads catching a little bit as I was, was running in the sand. And so I was just trying to move swiftly, calmly, catch my breath. I was still a bit dizzy from all the waves moving around and, and the oxygen deprivation. So um, I was just trying to focus on get to the getting to the transition uh, smoothly. So then you ran into transition, grabbed your your road bike with aero bars, and <laughs> and headed out on the course, and and you nailed it. So talk about the bike a little bit, some of the comments and uh, and things like that as it relates to the road bike and. For sure. Yeah. Well, I also have to give a quick shout out to the training camp and our practice rehearsals of the transitions, um, because even just doing that for an hour, one day made the process significantly more automatic for me. And so I was able to just focus on staying calm and being swift. And I was actually more focused on my breath than I was like, you know, the next step. But then I was eager to get on the bike and start taking a nutrition, which I felt like was much needed. So I got on, pulled out of T1. Uh, the first thing I saw as I pulled out uh, was Conrad along with my mom and uh, one of my sisters who was able to make it down there. My other sister was cheering from home, but that got me psyched just seeing that right before I started the bike. Uh, so I gave them a wave and immediately settled an arrow and just started uh, taking in as many calories as I could, hoping to ease these cramps that were kind of bugging me a little bit in the quads. A few minutes in, those cramps we're still not gone yet, um, but I also realized that I was mashing hard on the pedals um, and my cadence was pretty low. So I dropped a gear, kept the power the same and just increased my cadence. And within like a mile, everything started loosening up and I just, you know, kept continuing to down, down the nutrition. The rest of the ride felt really great. Like about, I think eight, eight to 10 miles in before the first aid station, um, I'd started settling into one, one pack and this one guy, as he rides up past me, he's like, I can't believe you're all the way up here with us on that old school road bike, man. <laughs> and, you know, I kind of just attributed it to, um, to my, my strong swim and, and kept moving. And I alluded to this earlier, but, you know, I, I was averaging a pretty strong speed, uh, at my power output. I think I was right at about 22 and a half miles an hour, which we had already calculated would be enough to bring it in in under two and a half hours. So that was starting to really put my mind at ease. I, and I just tried to stay within that target range. I remembered Derek's advice um, from the training camp as well, riding on the hills to pedal hard on the downs where you get a lot out of that extra effort and then just keeping it steady on the ups. And so I would actually, you know, dial back to the lower end of my target range going um, uphill. And when I say uphill, I'm talking about like a very subtle grade. This was like a mostly flat, like pretty much pancake flat course, but there was some variance. There were moments where you could see that, you know, your cadence would start going up high because you were getting some momentum or, or the opposite. Um, so I kept running that. And then way, way later in the course, I saw another guy 
who made the same same comment just i can't believe you're hanging up here on that old school road bike but that one i took a little bit more to heart because that was like i think probably that was after the last aid station so probably like 48 miles into the ride and so i was like yeah to still be hanging with all these tt guys actually uh makes me feel pretty good and then on the final stretch of the bike despite all those good feelings i started to fall into like a little bit of a funk i think you know for one i was anticipating the run which was this big question mark for me knowing that you know i might have issues with my knee on top of it it was the only place where there was a bit of a headwind derek i don't know if you experienced that on that final stretch oh yeah that was uh, pretty you know, brutal going east. <laughs> yeah so that was a little demoralizing i was you know excited that my watts were getting me the speed i needed and then here i was on the final stretch you know, starting to dip like to around 20 miles an hour, a little bit lower. And then on top of it, I had a quick little near-death experience. Um, we were down in Panama City Beach the same weekend as Jeep Jam. And so there were these souped up Jeeps all over and credit to the Ironman brand races. The traffic management was actually really great all along the course. But this one rogue Jeep was about to make a right turn directly in front of me. Um, and I could just tell from how fast he was moving that he had no idea I was there. And uh, luckily, though, there were these two women that were like closer to the Jeep about to make the turn than I was. And so I just started yelling like, yo, yo, yo. And I was I was not trying to be uh, <laughs> what's his name calling that out. But I they luckily heard me and very bravely, these two women leaped in front of this car, I swear to God, to get the driver's attention, just waving their hands. He stopped short and I still had to do a quick zigzag to get around the Jeep, but it was, he had stopped in enough time for me to see that I did have a clear path in front of him. And so I kind of brushed that off my shoulder um, and, you know, returned my focus to the upcoming transition. Um, but my quads were starting to cramp. There was still this headwind and, you know, I was about to embark on the run, which was my biggest concern. So uh, the adrenaline was starting to pump at that point, trying to figure out, you know, what was going to, what was going to happen. What was like your nutrition plan for the bike? How, how many calories per hour do you stick to fluids or do you mix it up with anything else? I think I ended up consuming about a thousand or 1100 calories throughout the whole bike. I had two bottles of liquid calories on the bike that were 300 calories each. Um, I think I finished one and a half of those before the first uh, aid station, which surprised me. I was, I was planning to kind of distribute those over the, like each hour and and just pick up you know more water and stuff along the way but once i got part way through the second bottle i just figured i may as well finish both of these so i can just load up on more supplies at the aid station conrad's mantra was echoing through my head always be wetting always be eating and so i just figured let's get these down and, and keep going as long as i have the room to stomach it i also took in some gels throughout the ride i would have liked to take some of those in uh, sooner, but I still need some practice uh, grabbing those uh, on the move uh, through the transitions or the aid stations. Um, Derek, I think you advised that I might just slow down a little bit next time, but that was not happening for me <laughs> in my first race. I just kept <laughs> zooming along. I squirted everybody with a ton of water whenever I grabbed the bottles because I wanted to make sure I didn't <laughs> drop it. Um, and and then I had two caffeinated gels in, in my tri-suit, which... Um, which helped kind of tie me over. Um, but I had a couple of those gels towards the end as well that uh, were a saving grace just because I, I wanted something a little solid. I mean, my bladder was full with the Gatorade. So like I needed more calories and a little less fluid at that point. 
Although I don't know with the leg cramps, if those were fatigue, I, it couldn't have been that I was dehydrated. That seems impossible. So, but yeah, the nutrition plan went really well and was grateful for, you know, some of the practice rides leading up to the race because I knew exactly what to do. And it just felt like clockwork. I, I really didn't think about it. It's the way it should be. Yeah. I mean, rehearsing the race beforehand is helpful and, and you had a nutrition plan and you executed it and you obviously, you know, I'm a big fan of eating a lot on the bike, uh, sort of maximizing your calorie consumption there. And obviously you nailed it because you were deliberate. So then the run, which was the big question mark on the day, take us yeah. through that. I started getting nervous right in the transition in T2 because I immediately realized I had to sit down to put on my shoes. The quads like just wanted to seize up. And if I was, I was trying to do it standing, they kept tightening. So I just sat down, put on the shoes. But once I got out of T2 and looked at my watch, I confirmed that I still had two hours to do this run and cross the finish line in under five hours. Um, and so as soon as I saw that, I was like, no reason to get, you know, full of myself or cocky. Let's use the space and see if we can take care of these cramps. And so relieved, you know, after that first half mile, immediately settled into like a very cautious eight minute pace. And periodically I would just kind of keep speeding it up to see, you know, what would happen, what I could get away with. And every time I got down to like a 740 pace, the cramps would worsen, but at eight minutes, they kind of just stayed at bay. And so I just kept doing that. And then every couple of aid stations, you know, I would start to feel better. And so I'd, I'd speed it up a little bit, see what I could get away with. And it would usually work for a little while and then, you know, sort of start to tighten up. So I'd slow down I'd get to the next aid station, get a little bit more water, douse myself to keep cool and a little bit more Gatorade to keep the electrolytes going. And that would again, relieve the cramps for a little bit. So there was a little bit of fluctuation, but I didn't want to be like, sprinting and then stopping or, or, and I really, really didn't want to have to walk a step. There was something in me that wanted to just, you know, have a clean race and run all the way through. And so for the most part, I stayed, I stayed, you know, cautious, um, just kind of hugged that time. So I, th I think I averaged seven fifty-five minute miles in the final mile. I figured if I've gone 12 miles and my quads haven't cramped up yet, then I'm probably going to get across the finish line. So I picked it up a bit. And I think, you know, the final 10th of a mile, I, you know, I was definitely running full stride across the finish line um, before everything really started to, to give out and, and cramp up. But yeah, it was really just the fact that I had stayed diligent through the big, whole beginning of the race and just stuck to the plan, stayed within myself, not going above my targets at any point in time. Um, it left everything that I needed to deal with the cramps, which were unexpected. I thought knee issues were going to be the things I would have to, was going to be the thing I'd have to face. If there was any knee pain, it was completely masked by the throbbing quad cramps I was getting. So, so that helped a lot. And um, our book club also helped because we had, uh, you know, we had read Running Rewired, which really emphasized that hip driven run and, and pushing out of the glute. And so I just kept telling myself, I don't actually really need my quads to run. Uh, just need to focus on the glute. I don't know if my stride felt a little funny because I was like exaggerating that a lot, but I, I, I don't know how it looked, but I didn't really care at that point. I just wanted to keep moving at an efficient pace, stay smooth. Conrad always says running smooth is running fast. And so I just tried to stick to that. And, you know, the, the, those little mantras kind of just stayed with me throughout the whole race to, to keep me in line and keep me where I needed to be. Yeah. Don't underestimate the power of a good mantra. 
because those silly mantras during the race, they're, they're shockingly useful, but that's good. I'm glad. And then you cross the finish line triumphantly, uh, well under your goal. Um, and how did that feel crossing the, the line and, and your mom and sister were there, which was awesome. Yeah, it was super overwhelming. I mean, as I talked about before we even, you know, got into the race breakdown, you know, I had a lot emotionally on the line for this race as well. And, you know, for all the work I put into getting some of that pressure out of my mind leading up to the race, the relief was still the same, the sense of accomplishment, the sense of everything kind of coming together, the satisfaction of executing according to plan, which was my plan going to the race. I was like, I'm going to follow these, these guidelines to a T because I don't know what the heck I'm doing. I've never done a triathlon before. Who am I to, you know, improvise or, or change anything? So I just wanted, I figured if I stuck to the plan, I could at least feel good about that. Um, even if things didn't go well, but sure enough, sticking to the plan meant that the race also went super smoothly. And I, I just couldn't believe that it actually came together that well. And I remembered, you know, my, my, one of my best friends, Chris Drake, he's up in New Hampshire. He was tracking along and he had asked me what some of my goals were, uh, before going into it. So that when he tracked, he would have context. And I think I sandbagged my goal for the bike a little bit because I was starting to get nervous about the fact that I was on the road bike, as mentioned. But it was so satisfying knowing, like, I gave him these times and he must have been watching and just seeing me, like, you know, nailing them one after another. There was so much satisfaction from all of that. And so it all came together at once. It was overwhelming. All of those thoughts I just described were happening simultaneously, not in the linear fashion that I went through. So yeah, I was just overwhelmed. I was tearing up. I was happy. I was crying. My body was cramping up and then I got out my mom and sister were there don't tell the Ironman people they snuck in they got through to the transition area to give me a hug and um I probably gave my mom the best hug I've ever given her uh in my life uh which I think was was great for both of us and I got all the pictures and then got to reunite with everyone on the team and hear how their races went and luckily you know you know most of the working triathletes also executed super well um and, you know, we got a well-oiled machine over here. And so then just getting to hear everyone else's stories and, and share the excitement, um, that just amplified everything. I was, I was soaring for uh, many days since then, uh, now still included. So you punched your ticket to the World Championships in St. George, Utah. Um, what are your thoughts on that? And I mean, obviously we have a big crew going out there now. Like I know we, there wasn't a designated team race for 2021, but... This is going to be it because we're going to have the most athletes out of the crew at the world championships, which is awesome. First of all, I really did not expect to get in. You know, we had done some, some quick estimates and, you know, I think for a brief time leading up to the race, I, I built up a little bit of hope. And then I just set it aside because I was finding that that goal wasn't helpful uh, to my mindset. Um, it just, it was too much too soon to even think about. And you know, obviously I got in through a roll down. So this was just like a huge surprise and which is great. That's, that's something I'm going to be able to leverage. And so, you know, you mentioned the team going down there. One of the biggest things I learned from being at Gulf Coast was just how much motivation and knowledge I soak up from being around other athletes. So now this prospect of going to stay with the fastest guys from our team and then racing alongside the fastest men and women from around the world just feels like this like incredible gift. My goal leading up to that race and at that race is just to stay consistent with training, continue sticking to the plan because the plan seems to work. 
hopefully I'll be able to recover, you know, the IT band issues and, and start building up some more speed on the run. I think that's a place where, you know, I could easily shave off another, you know, 10 minutes just by being a little bit more prepared there and, and, you know, getting my pace down. At, at the end of the day, my goal is really to go into the race humble, learn as much as I can. This is going to be my second triathlon ever when I do it at the world championships, which is just stupid. Like that's insane. That's not how it's supposed to happen. So I feel like I don't have the burden of thinking about like where I rank, who's in front of me, who's behind me. Like I'm not trying to podium at the world championships, my second race ever. That's not really in the cards anyway. And so I have the privilege of kind of setting all of that aside and just focusing on having fun, digging deep and just throwing down the best performance I can. So I feel like that's actually kind of an advantage as well. Going to the race, just, I think world championships means like more pressure for a lot of people, but for me, it just feels like this crazy opportunity I never expected to have. And so I get to have a lot of fun with it and it's going to bring out, I think a better performance for me than any other race environment. Um, so I'm just psyched to be down there with everyone. It's going to be so much fun. Yeah. It's certainly going to be a celebration. That's kind of how I viewed Nice a couple years ago. I knew I was not going to be taking risks down the mountain in Nice and my goal is to swim okay, fast, yeah. bike safe, and run fast. And I did just that. Same thing, no no pressure on myself. But it's a definitely a good mindset to go into races because some people get so worked up and paralysis by analysis, essentially, you know. So it's uh that's a good mindset to go into the race with. Congratulations on punching the ticket. I can't wait. It's gonna be uh it's gonna be an amazing weekend in St. George. Um all these WT athletes. Thanks for, for coming on the podcast and, and running us through. And I'm sure that there will be more races after St. George because I think you're, you love it, right? Triathlon has, you have the bug. I love it. I have the bug. I'm here to stay. I'm here to, I'm here to see what I'm capable of, which is, I think really what it's all about, just uncovering our, our own potential and seeing what we have. And uh, so, yeah, I can't wait. Thank you guys so much for having me on here. Rehashing this has just gotten me even more excited now for the next race. And uh, it's it's a real pleasure working with you guys, training with you guys, being coached by you, and and now doing this. All right. Thanks, listeners, for listening to the Working Triathlete Podcast. You can reach me at Derek at WorkingTriathlete.com. And you can reach me at Conrad at WorkingTriathlete.com. And I'm Seth. You can reach me at sgorson2 at gmail.com. I'm single and ready to mingle. So get at me. (laughs) (laughs) Hit him up.